one of my favorite days of the year, the final day of February in 2023. Spring is coming. A good day. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, ready to roll with a Tuesday lineup of news. Laura, you're first. Is Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan serious about trying to inject some common sense into our mess of an immigration system, or is this more grandstanding? Sabrina Eaton did a really nice takeout to kind of put this into perspective, and I think we all can agree that the way we handle immigration at the southern border is kind of a mess. So what's going on here? Yeah, Sabrina Eaton actually went to Arizona with Jim Jordan. I think we talked about last week that they went out on a border patrol but didn't find any immigrants trying to sneak in. So I'm going to have to say I'm still going on the side of grandstanding. I felt like Jim Jordan's middle name might be grandstanding. This is like the <laughs> second time in two weeks I've talked about it, but I did look it up and his middle name is Daniel. So that's not true. <laughs> but Democrats certainly believe it, believe it was grandstanding. And that's why they boycotted this hearing in Arizona. He said that it's a shame they would have heard directly from the people in Yuma, Arizona, who live President Biden's border crisis each and every day. So he had a Thursday public meeting that that night minute meet, um, visit to the border and then meetings with hospital, food bank, and agricultural officials who describe how migrants are stressing the local infrastructure. And this is not just Jordan. There are a whole bunch of Republicans who went and said that they need change. The thing is, Biden's press secretary is saying they have a comprehensive immigration reform proposal. No one's acting on it. And if you look at some of the data, the encounters with Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans have been plummeting since a new administration policy in January that was meant to expand safe and orderly lawful processes for migration while applying consequences to those who not avail themselves of the process. So the numbers are shrinking, and maybe that's why Jordan didn't run into anyone. He was on his border yeah. patrol. And I, I like the way Sabrina wrote the story because for people that want to give him the benefit of the doubt, there was some evidence there that maybe it's legit. But I, I'm with you. I think this is I'm going to say bad things about Joe Biden no matter what I can. I'm mm -hmm. going to try and make Americans think that the border crisis is the worst in history. Tucker Carlson parrots that nonsense. And so we hear from far right Republicans fairly regularly about ah, Joe Biden's evil because he won't fix immigration. And it seems like this is just to bolster that. Right. Like Biden. Is, I mean, I think everybody can probably agree that it could be better, but nobody wants to talk about a bipartisan way to do that. Instead, the Republicans are saying, this is a huge problem for our country. We're giving up our sovereignty, which is just a bizarre, absurd statement. Um, the, the Republican Paul Gosar from Arizona, he represents much of the Yuma area in Congress. He wondered if you could use an old law written to thwart pirates to give border control agents more access to Native American tribal lands along the border. I mean, I would never have put those words into a sentence. There is an issue. The the opioids that had been coming through the mail from China are now coming across the border in trucks. The Republicans try to make that sound like it's because the border is permeable, but they're coming across in trucks. I mean, right. It's those border are at crossings. border crossings where there are customs cards. Yeah. So there's a way to deal with that. You just need to search the trucks. It's not like they're they're walking them across into the land. Yeah, well, but Jordan's the 
he's the head of the House Judiciary Committee now, and he wants to push through legislation to restore the Remain in Mexico policy during Trump's uh, presidency and tighten immigration enforcement. The thing is, I mean, I don't think you're going to get anything like that through the Senate. No, the only way to do this would be to stop stop doing the showboating, Mm -hmm. go work with the Democrats in the Senate come up with a compromise. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But if if you sit down and say, here's what we want, what do you want? And you whittle that down, you can come up with some middle ground, which would make it better than it is. But they're not doing that. They're going to create something. And they're going to go to Arizona to yeah. have a news conference. <laughs> right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How can people who listen to this podcast help reduce the polarization that paralyzes us? And what are Braver Angels and Baldwin Wallace University trying to do about it? Layla, you get this monster. (laughs) Well, if listeners haven't read your column making the case for the importance of civil discourse and in our very divided times, they, they really should. Uh, Professor Lauren Copeland at, at the Baldwin Wallace University's Community Research Institute hopes to create a civility initiative or institute built around setting ground rules for respectful, good faith conversations on the subjects that are important to us, but also that divide us. And so to jumpstart that initiative, listeners can go to tinyurl.com slash civil discourse survey to take a survey that's aimed at determining where our attitudes stand on polarization in Northeast Ohio. And then they can go to braverangels.org and sign up. Braver Angels is an organization that seeks to bring people of, of all political stripes together for the kinds of conversations that Professor Copeland's Rules for Engagement are aimed at facilitating. They began in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. The founders were so concerned about the national rancor that they brought 10 Donald Trump voters and 10 Hillary Clinton voters together to see if they could arrive at common ground with a sense of civility. And they called it a red-blue workshop. It was held in the Cincinnati area. And this was so successful that they did it again in March of 2017. And that's really how Braver Angels was born. They now have chapters throughout the country. And Braver Angels has several forum types. In one, participants break into groups for discussions of specific topics. In others, the organization can teach skills like helping people depolarize themselves by examining how they speak about others. Professor Copeland was so inspired by the Braver Angels model that she decided to develop plans for the Baldwin Wallace Democracy and Civility Initiative. It's still in development, and and it could take one of many forms. It it might teach faculty how to cultivate civility, or it could teach Northeast Ohioans how to engage in civil discussions, or it could teach the community and students and faculty how to participate in the political process, come up with solutions to problems and talk about topics like race in a, in a way that's non-judgmental or share information without further polarizing us. So the civility movement, it seems, is off to a running start. And uh, you did a wonderful job with your column, Chris. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, 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 it's not part of my job to write 3,500 word pieces, so, so <laughs> it took a lot out of me. But I was so impressed by what Lauren had done with her classes last semester. I sat down and talked with the students. They were delightful. People should sit down and talk with college students as often as they can. Just fresh and open-minded and and energized. And then the Braver Angels folks have really gotten into the nuance of how we speak and what we do. I felt like we had to do something to push this 
into the atmosphere. And I was really glad it, this story got a huge amount of engagement over the weekend. And a whole bunch of people wrote to me to say they took the survey, they signed up. Um, uh, according to Lauren, they got about two thirds of the way to the total number of responses they needed by, I think, wow. yesterday morning. They could, What's the total they need? I don't know. Oh, I can't remember. It's usually, it's smaller than you think, but but they don't have enough conservatives. They need to get some more mm. people that lean red. So I'll probably write something just to to say that. Please go fill this out. It's a very provocative set of questions. I mean, I took an early draft and it it's meant to make you a little bit uncomfortable. It hmm. is successful at that. And I heard from several readers that it did that. This was a very different sort of survey to make you think about where you stand. So I, I'm glad people I, and people said they were signing up for Braver Angels. They want to have those conversations. I do think what Laura mentioned yesterday, the contrast between this piece and the reaction we got from people to the Dilbert decision, it, it, it's a it's a unreconcilable conflict. We heard from people, abjectly racist people who are mm -hmm. set. And I heard from some of our readers saying, look, I want to do this, but the, the people who are to the extremes, I don't know how to talk to them. They're never going to change their minds. And my answer was, Braver Angels isn't going to get to the extremes. Those folks that are drowning out all conversation right now with their screaming are not really part of the solution. It's the, the great number of people in the center that probably can do this. But I hope, I hope whatever they come up with, Baldwin-Wallace is rich. I also heard yesterday from somebody that sent all this to the Bliss Institute at the University of Akron, which is working on its own civil discourse initiative, and maybe the two universities could even work together. Oh, that's terrific. You know, it's interesting. Coincidentally, I was editing a column yesterday that came in from Leslie Kuba, our columnist, and a while back she wrote a gun control column, and she was just pounded with response from people. You know, that's a very inflaming kind of topic. And there were so many personal attacks in those in those emails that the tone of her she she wrote a follow up column that basically says how are we ever going to find solutions when this is how we treat one another and I was you know she had she had read your column and she was so glad that you had kind of set the table for her to launch into this uh, this next piece so I hope I hope you tell her that what you're hearing from there is not representative. It's a very mm -hmm. vocal, very tiny minority. And, and it, it is offensive. If you don't, if you haven't developed the thick hide, it, it can be tough. I mean, I, I have not enjoyed the, the, the stew of racial invective that's been rolling across my mailbox, but you know, it, it bounces off me because I, I, these people have no credibility. I hope that she develops that because it's not, I, I would hate for her to start taking that personally. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I don't know if the prosecution saved their best witness for last, but the final prosecution witness did have powerful things to say about Larry Householder. How did he take the statement about blowing up his house? I should say, Lisa, he was talking more about uh, Matt Borges, the Larry Householder co-defendant, but it's all part of the big bracketeering case. So it's together. 
Yeah, and and Tyler Furman took the stand yesterday, and he's probably arguably the prosecution's star witness. He was the last witness for the prosecution, and his testimony was about his dealings with Matt Borges. Um, Furman, as you recall, worked to gather signatures to repeal House Bill 6 back in 2019. He and Borges were friends, and he testified about the details on attempts by Borges to get information on the repeal effort, and he attempted to give uh, Furman a 50 $15,000 check. Uh, Furman was undergoing a messy personal life at the time. He was getting divorced. He was in personal debt. But he said in his conversations with Borges, he immediately knew that something was wrong and he declined to help Borges in a text message. But then he felt threatened by Borges, claims that he would blow up Furman's house if he told anyone about their meetings. And so what he did is he went immediately to the FBI on a friend's advice, and he agreed to wear a wire. So he recorded several conversations with Matt Borges. Now, these tapes were played for the jury earlier in the trial during FBI agent Blaine Wetzel's testimony, but they got new context from Furman's testimony. He said he was really shocked by Matt's requests. And he told about how House Bill 6 supporters harassed the repeal signature effort. And he actually said that he had to break up an incident where his mother, who was helping with the effort, was surrounded by aggressive House Bill 6 backers. And he said he was really disappointed. He saw Borges as a mentor. He looked up to him, but he said the friendship came to an end when Borges began pumping him for information about the repeal effort. And he did speak to what we didn't know whether it was a joke or not, the statement by Borges that if you tell anybody, I'll blow up your house. What did he say about that? I, he, oh, he, oh, I'm sorry. I, maybe that got cut from the story before you saw it. He, he said he saw that as a threat. He, oh, he, mm-hmm. he did feel unnerved by that and think about it later. Early on when that came up, we were, wow, he actually said those words. But there was a question of, ha, 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 Furman laughed when he said it, but he did say it rattled him. So. Well, it's one thing for Borges to say he was joking. It's another one if Furman's going to say if he was joking or yeah, not, and he, right? he There's totally, a big difference. Yeah, and he totally took that threat seriously, which is why he went to the FBI. He's like, holy moly, what's going on here? But now on uh, Borges' attorney, Todd Long, on cross-examination, tried to say that Furman was the one to bring up his personal debt and not Borges, and that Borges actually arranged contract work for Furman. So I guess he should have felt like, you know, gratitude for that or something. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, this next one, I liked the Furman story yesterday. You persuaded (laughs) me to put this one on the front page of the Plain Dealer. The big question, will Larry Householder testify in his own defense? Only he and his attorneys know, but that did not stop us from talking to some experts to speculate What are the predictions? Correct. So Householder has said he's going to testify. That obviously doesn't mean he will. But David DeVillers, the former U.S. prosecutor who brought these charges, is thinking yes, as well as for lobbyist Matt Borges. Um, Attorney on Monday for Borges said the presumption is that Borges will testify. A Householder attorney says haven't made a final decision yet. But DeVillers explained that In certain cases involving allegations of conspiracy, including in political corruption cases, jurors basically expect to hear from the defendants to get their side of the story. For example, if that $500,000 is really a loan and not a bribe, they would want to hear Householder explain that. And so he also said that that politicians and white-collar defendants 
who are involved in politics often believe in their ability to explain their actions to a jury. Think about it. They've been persuading people to vote their way, to vote for them for years and years, and they, they give speeches all the time. So they have a belief in their ability to persuade people. Well, I think Borges really does believe he's innocent and because and he's full of himself. So I think they're probably right. He will take the stand. I I will be surprised if Larry Householder's lawyers don't talk him out of taking the stand because you know, First Energy has admitted to bribing him. I mean, it's mm-hmm. this that's is, not part of this trial. I know, but it but it's it, it, if he says the wrong thing, you can open up avenues of questioning that are not in the sphere yet. The prosecutors would be champing at the bit to be able to cross-examine him, and he's got a lot to lose. I I wonder if he is so full of himself that he thinks he can bamboozle everybody. Uh, but I, I just I, this is a toss up. It's a risky, risky move. I, if, I like what Deviller said. And this is a quote. I think the fact that their personalities are such that I think is likely they will both testify. <laughs> I mean, that just says it all right. And, yeah, and Andrew did mention that at the trial of Alex Murdaugh, that prominent South Carolina attorney accused of killing both his wife and his son. And I think there's a lot of attention on his testimony last week in their trial. Very different trial, but still you know, you're the accused and you're going up there to defend yourself. Yeah. And he ended up getting on the stand and spending hours talking about all the crimes he committed. He just is <laughs> saying, yeah, I did all that. I just didn't kill them. Uh, it, I'm not sure that was the wisest move for him to take the stand. We'll see. The decision will have to be made soon. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Will the government ever get back all that money paid out in fraudulent unemployment claims during the pandemic? Or will it just be one case at a time? What did one person who signed off on claims get accused of doing, Layla? Yeah, right. It's been, what, like a billion dollars in fraudulent claims. And here we see that in some cases, insiders facilitated them. The The Ohio Inspector General, which is the office that investigates corruption, fraud, and abuse within Ohio's executive branch, announced Monday that a contract employee improperly cleared several pandemic unemployment assistance assistance claims, including two that belonged to her relatives. And that resulted in more than $20,000 in overpayments. This worker was hired through Buker and Christian Consulting. That firm was helping the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services process this incredibly high volume of unemployment compensation claims that they were getting during the pandemic. She worked as a temporary customer service rep for most of 2021 to help verify information that was submitted by claimants to obtain unemployment. And well, you know, the inspector general's office received a complaint about what this worker was up to. ODJFS flagged the two claims belonging to her relatives because they lacked documentation that's required to validate a claimant's identity and income. And, you know, the investigation also found this employee was responsible for a $13,000 overpayment in unemployment funds to a third unrelated person that she had been in contact with. So the inspector general's office reviewed the ODJFS records related to the workers' improper release of these funds, and they found that she incorrectly stated the claimants that the claimants provided the agency with the right documentation that they and that they were eligible for the payments, and they confirmed that, that all of that was a lie. So the office said it's going to refer its findings to the the Franklin County Prosecutor's uh, Office, 
and the Ohio Auditor of State for for further action. And, and they're also recommending that that the uh, that Ohio take steps to recover the overpayments. Yeah, good luck, and and develop some safeguards to prevent this from ever happening again. Okay, so if you solve a billion dollars in fraud. 10, 20, $30,000 at a time. How many centuries would it take to finish investigating these cases? Isn't there some like, yeah, Confucius uh, <laughs> about like, you know, grains of one grain of sand at a time? Yeah, I, I just don't know that that's the scale we need to get that money back. Interesting story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. If dramatic new evidence arises to create serious questions about a murder conviction, should the conviction convicted person get a new trial? What's at the heart of a Northeast Ohio case before the U.S. Supreme Court this week? Lisa, this is an interesting tale. It really is. Uh, Leland Miller is serving 47 years to life for the February 2013 murder of Richard McCoy of Cleveland. But he's asking the Ohio Supreme Court for a new trial on the grounds that a witness, the only eyewitness that testified lied in the trial. So Mario Godfrey, the witness, claimed that Miller shot McCoy after an argument over money in an auto shop. So Miller, McCoy, and Godfrey left in a car, and Godfrey testified that McCoy was shot during that ride, but Miller said he was dropped off at a nearby bar. But then in 2019, Miller's son gets a handwritten notarized document from Godfrey saying that he lied. In, in Miller's trial. And as I said, he was the only eyewitness to testify. Uh, interestingly, though, the Ohio Innocence Project took no action on this case. Uh, new trial requests usually must come within tw- 120 days of the verdict. But Miller says he deserves a hearing. I mean, this letter came in 2019, several years after the trial. And he says he deserves a hearing to consider what he says is new evidence in the case. The Common Police Court denied his request. The appeals court went along with that. So that's why it's moving up to the Ohio Supreme Court. But prosecutors are saying that the witness, Godfrey, didn't explain why he suddenly changed his statement. And they say that the case lacks lacks substantial constitutional questions and that the court shouldn't be deciding this. It's It's a tough one, right? Because when the case goes to trial, the jury hears all the evidence, they see this witness, they consider whether the witness is telling the truth. And sometimes witnesses feel bad about what they said and recant as a lie. Should a jury get to reconsider it? I guess that's what the Supreme Court will uh, be deciding. I remember a death penalty case in in Texas back in the 80s where a black janitor was convicted and sat on death row and had a date with death. And he had been on death row for years. And then all of a sudden, two white janitors recanted their testimony and said, well, you know, they were the ones who did it. So this guy almost died because of that. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think this is new evidence that needs to be considered. Yeah, in the end, if you're depriving somebody of their liberty, you would think that you would give them every chance to prove that they they might be wrongly convicted and get their chance to go before another jury, especially since this was the only witness against him. The way the U.S. Supreme Court's been going lately, I don't know what his chances are. Uh, this well, is at we... the Ohio Supreme Court. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was the U.S. Supreme Court. My mistake? Thanks for correcting me. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The talk of artificial intelligence is the rage in 2023, with ChatGPT getting the most headlines. But four major institutions in Ohio's three biggest cities used AI to deduce that ketamine 
is a good drug for treating cocaine addiction. Laura, how did that work? Right. This is a group of scientists from Case Western Reserve, University of Cincinnati, Cleveland Clinic, Lerner College of Medicine, and Metro Health Medical Center. And they had this idea that ketamine could help curb cocaine addictions. There was existing studies. None of them had a wide enough range of subjects that they could point to that this is pretty definitive. So they used artificial intelligence to analyze tens of millions of electronic health records. And this is called repurposing. The idea is finding existing drugs that have the potential to treat conditions other from what other than what they were developed for. And they're using a discovery algorithm that was developed by Case Western Reserve to screen a potential list of of drugs. So they were able to find a greater diversity of participants by race, gender, and concurrent medical and psychiatric conditions just based on doing the AI work and found that cocaine use disorder patients who were administered ketamine for pain, so for something different, or depression, they experienced two to four times higher remission rates. So that was really good news. So they were able just to, to scan all of these records that already existed to find something that looked pretty promising. Yeah, I, I was the idea that ketamine is being used is radical, right? Because ketamine was not intended for that purpose. But the way they come up with that is fascinating. You just wonder how many other discoveries will be made now that we're feeding all this data into the computer to kick out what we might not see as people trying to study it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that you're not having to go through all of these different drug trials from the beginning to test things, right? You already have a huge body of research that you can comb through. The AI trend for the next 10 years is going to be as big a deal as the internet, if not bigger. I can't wait to see what we learn. A lot of bad things could happen as a mm. result, but a lot of good could come of it. And we're really off to the races. It's kind of cool to be alive right now. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much time will a formerly respected Pepper Pike rabbi spend in prison after getting caught in an underage sexting? Layla, this was a big news case because this guy was pretty widely known. Yes. 61-year-old Stephen Weiss, who for two decades served as a pulpit rabbi at B'nai Jeshurun, is get it, go, he's going to prison for six months. Weiss pleaded guilty last month to attempted unlawful sexual conduct with a minor and importuning, which stemmed from his April arrest by investigators with the Ohio Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. This guy communicated over a messaging app with an undercover agent who he believed was a 15-year-old boy, a high school freshman. Then he offered to have sex with the boy, and he made a plan to meet up at the kid's house and this was a straight up to catch a predator style sting, right? The, the guy showed up with his condoms and his erectile dysfunction medicine, and he was very concerned about the possibility of surveillance cameras at the kid's house. So busted. Now in court, he tried to argue that he shouldn't get any prison time. He blamed the whole thing on a traumatic brain injury in 2018 that necessita necessitated that he take this medicine that affected his impulse control and decision making. And he actually had a doctor write a letter to the court saying he didn't think Weiss would have committed this crime, but for this medication. But, you know, apparently this isn't the first time he has gotten pegged in a situation like this. It happened in 2020. He he had reached out to an undercover agent again, but didn't try to meet up with the agent. So he wasn't arrested or charged. Uh, but I'll tell you what, even if the meds made it difficult to control his impulses, his impulse was still to have sex with a child. So <laughs> lock are, him up. <laughs> what are they doing prescribing a medicine that could have that effect? I mean, that's a, that sounds like a dangerous medicine that maybe there ought to be 
alternatives. Uh, uh, it seems like, a case, look, anybody that has kids worries about this kind of thing. And, and it, this is one of the investigative units we have in Northeast Ohio that, that does a lot to keep people in check. The fact that he was worried about cameras and things tells you that they're aware there's enforcement out there. Right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got one more. As as today is the end of Black History Month, let's talk about one of the profiles we published over the last four weeks about an internationally recognized advocate for housing issues. Lisa, who was Inez Killingsworth? She was an awesome woman, apparently. Um, she founded Empowering and Strengthening Ohio's People, or ESOP, to fight predatory lending, and she made that program statewide in 2008. And she helped 55,000 families stay in their homes between 2005 and 2012, according to current ESOP executive director, Michael Bilnitzer. He was like, he said she was an amazing woman. He said she was kind of frail. She was not an educated woman, but she could put the fear of God into powerful bankers. And she would organize bus tours of Cleveland neighborhoods that had been ravaged with empty homes. And, and she, you know, took Wall Street financiers to show them what was going on. She testified before Congress on the effects of predatory lending, particularly on black families. And she got many lenders to change their tune. She got them to treat black borrowers equally. And if they didn't, I love this, she would go to protests and throw plastic sharks at these lawyers. <laughs> I just I just love that visual. But she's been an advocate for for years. I mean, she approached the school board and city hall about wild dogs in her Union Miles neighborhood that wouldn't let her kids walk to school because they were so wild. And she could see the school from her porch. And she was also a janitor at Alexander Hamilton Middle School. And she helped troubled students on her own after school. And her daughter, Wanda, called her the unofficial mayor of Cleveland. Yeah, it's a wonderful profile. It's, Laura, it's by Brenda Kane, right? Laura, you there? Was. Yes, it is yes, by it Brenda is. Kane. Yeah, she did a lot of really nice pieces for yeah. Black History Month. Yeah, if you want to see a bunch of uh, of nice profiles in honor of the month, just search for her name and, on Cleveland. And I'm with Lisa. That plastic shark detail. You're like, <laughs> can you come up with anything more? You know, it's like nonviolent, but just very piercing. Can you imagine somebody went down to city council during a council meeting and did that today? <laughs> they probably have arrested. Maybe they make them say whether they're voting yes or no. Like maybe we'd, we'd hear them. All right. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast.